the difference between saying there is a threat, this invisible threat over which uh, you are limited beyond wearing a mask and maintaining your social distance and and just waiting for that vaccine to hit the scene, as opposed to, yes, there is a threat out there, but there's a lot that you can do to empower yourself to dramatically reduce your risk of serious illness or even death, not just you, but those you love. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting-edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Mark Pettis. Mark is a triple board-certified internist, nephrologist, and integrative medicine physician practicing for over 25 years. He currently serves as the Director of Medical Education, Wellness, and Population Health at Berkshire Health Systems in Western Massachusetts. In addition, he serves as the Associate Dean of Medical Education at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Mark is the author of two books, The Savvy Patient and It's All in Your Head, Change Your Mind, Change Your Health. His podcast, one of my absolute favorites, The Health Edge, that he does with John Bagnulo, is heard by people all over the world. Welcome to the show, Mark. Drew, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Oh, it's great to be with you. Uh, Mark, I figured maybe we start out with this, you know, Right now, as as you know, in the world, there is just so much, there's a lot of anger, I would say. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of fear. What do you see, Mark, as the antidote to all of this fear and division and, and anger, frankly? Yeah, what, a, what an understatement, right, Drew? Uh, 2020 <laughs> has been just an extraordinary year. And, and while, while we all can look at our lives and point to uh, events or things that happen that tend to come and go. This has not only been a, a real challenge, but it's been very sustained uh, over many, many months. There's been very little let up. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the neuroscience folks refer to this phenomenon of allostatic load. And uh, for the listeners, allostatic load is the extent to which an environment and the circumstances of one's environment uh, begins to overwhelm an individual's ability to adapt in a more effective way. And uh, so the allostatic load in 2020 for everyone has been off the charts. And, and when you look at that uh, from, a, from a sort of biologic, from a health perspective, Drew, really what you see is this fight-flight response. Uh, you know, the, 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 the individual and the brain of that individual interprets those threats and, and elicits a biology that is essential for survival. Uh, you know, it helps you be more aware and uh, maybe to run for your life or to, or to get ready for the battle. And fight-flight is a great survival response when it is short-lived. It, it, we have evolved to have these periods of fight-flight. And, and so 
the biology for most of us over the last several months has been one of a sustained fight-flight response. And uh, when you look at the, the adrenaline and the cortisol and the disruption of normal circadian rhythms, you can begin to understand why it is that uh, mental health issues have really skyrocketed, depression, anxiety. Um, and so I do think that huge question you ask um, sort of begs for a roadmap that can help us stay in the eye of the storm. How do we coexist with, with all of that um, stress and, and all of those challenges in a way that leaves us a bit less reactive, more in the eye of that storm. And, and that, that's a good basis for uh, many lifestyle possibilities that we know can leave one much more resilient to these kinds of stresses. And it's probably never been more important than it is right now. Absolutely, Mark. And actually, that leads to sort of the next, <laughs> the next theme here, which is, you know, with, with the virus in particular, with this coronavirus, I mean, when you put on the news or, or anything, you hear a lot about the masks and you hear about the vaccine and those type of things, but we don't hear a lot about natural solutions um, like strengthening our immune system. I mean, except if people listen to your show, um, yeah. the podcast, but we don't hear a lot about it. You know, why do you think we, why is it that we don't hear much about strengthening our own system and, you know, sort of our power to, you know, basically take our power back, take our health yeah. back? It's a really great question, Drew, and I think it reveals that the pandemic has revealed a, an infrastructure of, of healthcare that really sees everything as a war, everything as a battle. In this instance, the uh, COVID nineteen is the is the enemy, and indeed, it's a formidable threat, no doubt about that. But in that traditional medical pharmacologic model. Uh, the weapons become the future vaccine, which everyone is sort of hanging their hat on. We know that vaccines are not the solution. Yeah, it'd be nice to have a vaccine. But even with influenza vaccines, we know each year it can be hit or miss in terms of its effectiveness. Um, so, so vaccines, uh, while they may mitigate some of the fear that people are fearing uh, or feeling, um, are limited in their ability to uh, sort of mitigate, uh, you know, what we're, we're seeing. And yeah, sure, the mask and the hand washing. I mean, all of that is just good public health hygiene for any potential respiratory illness. Um, but that, right, that is the form that this battle has taken. And, and it has the unintentional effect of leaving people feeling like they are uh, potential victims without any ability to control what happens to them. And, uh, you know, you just, you just pray that uh, the bomb won't drop on you or, or a family member, which is so different than what you are asking about, right? Hey, we, we know that uh, resiliency, whether it be immune resilience or what we sometimes refer to as metabolic resilience, is a state that can be generated. Uh, and if you look at COVID, for example, Drew, 90%, 90% of people seriously impacted by COVID, whether it's requiring a hospitalization, 
maybe critical care, or even, even losing one's life. 90% had one or more what we call cardiometabolic risk factors, being overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, history of heart disease. And those metabolic states can be transformed. They can be, in some instances, reversed. They can be modified uh, powerfully through lifestyle interventions that I know we'll get into. Uh, so the difference between saying there is a threat, this invisible threat over which uh, you are limited beyond wearing a mask and maintaining your social distance and, and just waiting for that vaccine to hit the scene, as opposed to, yes, there is a threat out there, but there's a lot that you can do to empower yourself to dramatically reduce your risk of serious illness or even death, not just you, but those you love, through some relatively simple steps and interventions. That is a very different framework for the discussion. It's much more empowering. It leaves people with more ability to influence circumstances that, that they confront in their lives. Uh, and that's really what holistic, integrative approaches to health um, are all about. And yet our system still uh, sees most things as diseases and most of the weapons uh, as pharmacologic or, or biotechnologic weapons. And uh, yeah, there's a place for that, but that's, that's really not what most people need here. Absolutely, uh, Mark. I mean, maybe you could, um, for the listeners, maybe point to a couple of the the big ones that you really recommend as far as trying to make your immune system more resilient, trying to make your system able to withstand, you know, whatever come comes down the pike. Great, Drew. And so from a nutrition perspective, we know that there are key nutrients that are very important for immune response. Examples of that would be uh, vitamin D, uh, and other fat-soluble vitamins, which are vitamin A, vitamin K, vitamin E, um, as well as uh, non-fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin C. And so one would start with thinking more strategically about eating nutrient-dense foods. And so these are foods that aren't processed. And, and these could be, you know, I, I tend to be uh, yeah, I'm an omnivore, and I understand that people have many dietary preferences, some of which may not include red meat or animal products. But in general, uh, whether it's an animal product or plant-based foods, the less processed, the more nutrient density. And that, that's going to be key just in terms of assuring you have what you need. Because we know that many people are deficient in vitamin D. Uh, they're deficient in zinc. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll close the circle in a moment with, with what might, for some might be some thoughtful supplementation um, that can um, be a good adjunct to a whole foods diet. But I would say when you look at the research, particularly with respect to uh, weight and diabetes, we know that carbohydrate restriction and um, lower carbohydrate implying one would want to reduce as much as they can 
those high glycemic foods. These are foods or beverages that when consumed will have a much greater uh, um, elevation of sugar and insulin. That is clearly a disruptor of effective immune function. And so cutting out foods that contain a lot of sugar, um, flour, what, what, what my buddy John and I would refer to as carbohydrate-dense foods. And these tend to be grains, uh, grains that are even whole grains uh, are very carbohydrate-dense foods. And I, and I know that might be a little bit of, of a mind-bender for people who um, embrace whole grains. And, but, but in general, if you're overweight, uh, and if you are dealing with you know, pre-diabetes or diabetes, you want to be really careful about these carbohydrate-dense foods. Moderating them might be one of the single most important steps that one could take in improving their immune health. In the same light, Drew, and this too uh, enters the, the uh, territory of, of controversial, though I think the research is much less controversial than what, what the media might suggest, is the importance of healthy fat sources. These would be things like uh, omega-3 fats, uh, you know, fatty fish, salmon, sardines, trout, mackerel, anchovies. Uh, they may come from nuts. They may come from eggs, particularly pasture-raised eggs. Um, you know, eggs have gotten a bad rap, in my view, very inappropriately uh, because of cholesterol and LDL. You know, I would suggest that we, we need a more contemporary context for how we think about foods that all ancestral cultures have understood as essential to good health and resilience. And so eggs and egg yolks. Um, if you look at uh, pasture-raised meats, uh, these are very nutrient-dense foods. Um, shellfish, very high in zinc, magnesium. And then, of course, plant-based foods are, are very, very important. Um, and, you know, all plant-based foods are going to be better choices than processed, carbohydrate-dense, grain-based, sugar um, you know, riddled uh, food sources, which, you know, most of our standard American diet is replete in those foods. So those are um, reduction in, in high glycemic carbohydrates, liberalization of whole uh, unprocessed fats, uh, nutrient-dense plant-based foods that are higher in zinc and, and uh, B vitamins and vitamin C, and then the last piece, and I know this will resonate with so much of the work that you've done, um, Drew, uh, is the importance of fiber in plant-based foods, which we know is essential to help create and sustain a more diverse microbiome in the gut. And we know that our microbiome, these innocent bystanders, are really active partners in the uh, training and in the uh, modulation of our immune system. Uh, so we know that people with a more diverse immune system tend to be much more immune resilient. They don't get as many respiratory infections. They, they're less likely to get sick from the flu. And so we should be applying these same principles in general, uh, particularly in the context of a pandemic where you know, those things nutritionally are my sort of top 
um, hit list of changes that will powerfully bring you to a more resilient place. And it's certainly true, Drew, that many people um, might benefit from some thoughtful supplementation. I don't, I don't recommend lots of supplements, but, but in the context of what we are talking about, if you look at zinc, 15 to 30 milligrams a day of zinc as a supplement would be a huge um, card to, to put into your hand. Um, and I would, I would add to that vitamin C, 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams a day of vitamin C. Uh, and then I might consider, depending on one's quality of, of, of diet, uh, even something like cod liver oil, um, which is just a great source of the fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin A, K, you know, D, vitamin E. And, you know, our grandparents, uh, as they chased us around the house with a tablespoon, uh, you know, there's some ancient wisdom there that, that has, has survived many generations because it actually works. Uh, and so those are just some uh, sort of top checklist nutritional and, and some supplement, supplements that I would be considering from a nutrition perspective. That's great. Yeah, I, I definitely embrace that whole nourishing traditions kind of diet. I chase my son around with uh, cod liver oil, so I, I, I'm right there with you. Um, that's awesome, Mark. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, just on a whole on a whole separate notion, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this out there. I had posted something earlier um, in this whole pandemic. I had posted something on Facebook um, regarding vitamin C from from a doctor in um, China, and it was it was the post was removed as you know just um, you know just as it wasn't factually correct or something yeah. to advocate vitamin C. And it's just, you know, like you said, I mean, these are just the basics. I mean, there's more censorship than ever, right? True. And unbelievable that end up, end up on social media, that artificial intelligence will recognize and it becomes the basis, uh, for censoring, uh, what can be really important information. Now, when you look at, and this is published in mainstream peer-reviewed medical literature, Drew, if you look at vitamin C given intravenously to people who are sick enough from COVID to require hospitalization or critical care, ventilation, it is clear that vitamin C in high, high doses that you could only give intravenously is a powerful intervention. Um, and, uh, you know, if that was produced by... Uh, Pfizer or or AstraZeneca, <laughs> uh, you'd be hearing more about it. Um, but but again, it, it says a lot about some of the biases we bring into our perception of what what is effective and what isn't. Vitamin C is a very good example there. Absolutely. So, um, Mark, when I had when I had John on the show and we were talking about food, um, he went right to the yogurt, and I mean that really just drives home the whole importance of the gut and the role of the gut in any infection and, you know, the bulk of our immune system in our gut. Maybe if you could speak to, uh, Mark, the role of the gut in, you know, as a way, as another tool in, in strengthening our whole system. Yeah, it's such a great dimension of human health that, uh, like so many aspects of holistic ancestral health, 
were, were once widely embraced by all ancestral cultures that we've sort of, with each passing modern generation, we've lost touch with. Um, and the gut, as Hippocrates and other, others knew, uh, without understanding the biome or, or nuances of gut function, it's pretty clear that our immune system is largely uh, situated along the lining of the gut, which strategically makes sense because uh, everything that we eat and drink is really from the outside world. It passes through this 26-foot inner tube that we call the gastrointestinal tract. And wouldn't it make sense to have your defense system right on the border of that so that anything penetrating the wall, which in this case is the lining of the intestinal tract, would be met with surveillance, vigilance, and in the example of a potential threat, a system-wide call to action. So the gut is probably as much an immunologic organ as it is an organ of digestion. And that, that's a different way of thinking about the gut. And the microbiome, uh, th this ecosystem within the gut, is essential, as we are understanding, in uh, partnering with our immune system to assure that we're not overreacting uh, for something that uh, may not be the threat that our, our immune system might think that it is, and not underreacting uh, to something that may indeed be a threat. And so you begin to see how foods that influence the diversity of the gut, like fermented foods like yogurt, plant-based foods that have a higher amount of fermentable fiber become essential in, um, in, the, in the goal of establishing uh, diversity there. In much the same way, Drew, that uh, gut permeability, uh, what, what some refer to as leaky gut, is probably very prevalent um, in part because of, of a standard American diet in part because of many uh, toxins that find their way into the gut. Examples of that might be uh, glyphosate, Roundup, um, as a, um, uh, you know, it, that's just a pervasive toxin uh, that we know will influence the biome of the gut and permeability of the gut. Uh, antibiotics that may be in feedlot poultry or pork uh, because of uh, or eggs because of the extent to which those animals were given antibiotics. You know, these are things that we know over time will interfere with the permeability of the gut. So there's a, a growing list of things that we know will interfere with the integrity of this immune regulatory organ. And um, there, there are many steps uh, that people can do to enhance that. And you know, that's not information you're going to get from the Center for Disease Control or from your departments of public health. That, that's just not the, the playbook of the roadmap. Absolutely, Mark. Uh, what are some lifestyle strategies you recommend, a couple big ones for people that want to, you know, strengthen their, their system? I think another really big one, Drew, is the uh, um, concept of circadian disruption. So uh, humans have evolved 
as really biologic clocks. Our human biology is on a clock, and our clocks have been synchronized with sunrising and sunsetting patterns. Uh, and when you look at disruption of that circadian rhythm, uh, so people uh, who work night shift, for example, that's where a lot of the, the medical research has been. We know that um, night shift workers, um, and this, these might be healthcare professionals, they might be first responders, uh, they have a much higher prevalence of all chronic health diseases from obesity to depression to heart disease to autoimmunity to diabetes. And so it has long been recognized that if you have an occupation that disrupts your biologic rhythms, uh, that you're going to confront more health risks. Along those lines, people generally spend much less time outdoors. So, you know, we don't get enough of that natural light. And most of the environmental cues that establish our circadian rhythms or what is called circadian entrainment is light. Uh, it's those early morning hours of, of sunshine uh, that have more blue light. That's what turns our clocks on. Late day, late afternoon, early evening sunshine has less blue light and more of the yellow, orange, red wavelengths of light. Those wavelengths of light signal to our bodies that it's time to begin to relax, it's time to rejuvenate, it's time to repair uh, whatever may have been uh, affected during the day, and this is the signal in the environment that is telling me that it is time to do that. Now, most Americans have profound disruption of that. Uh, we know that over 40% of Americans have disrupted sleep. Uh, and when you look at, in the example of lighting, not only are people spending very little time outdoors getting the benefit of that natural light, uh, but they are in indoor environments that are artificially lit with more technologic time, be it, be it smartphone, be it tablet, be it laptop, be it computer, be it high definition television, where those light sources tend to be stronger um, um, blue light. And so as we spend more time on those tech, tech devices, uh, particularly after sunset, where we are getting mostly blue light, it may be 9 p.m. And, and you're working on your laptop or your tablet or, or your smartphone or you're watching a, you know, a ball game and your brain thinks that it's eight in the morning. Uh, and so a time during the day where your melatonin should be going up and your cortisol should be going down due to the disruption of the light signaling in the environments that we're in, you see the opposite. You see melatonin going down, which will make it very hard to fall asleep and to stay asleep. You see cortisol going up. And so instead of repairing and, and rejuvenating, your body 
is thinks that it's time to go hunt and gather. Um, so you see a complete hacking of circadian um, rhythms. And so that's a really big deal from a human health perspective. Immune resilience, weight, metabolism, mental health, mood, cognition are all very much impacted by that. So, so I tell people, no matter where you live, um, get outside, even for five or 10 minutes in the morning, no sunglasses. Um, you know, if you're living at a more northern latitude, uh, you can even look at the sun uh, and it won't be so strong as to, uh, you know, be harmful in any way. But you still get those normal, natural wavelengths of light. Um, same later in the day, 10, 15 minutes, late afternoon, early evening, get that sunlight. A big disruptor of circadian rhythm is when we eat throughout the day, particularly close to bedtime. Uh, and so what Sacha has shown is that when one narrows that window, time-restricted eating, to about 10 hours and allows two to three hours on the far end between that last consumption and bedtime, that seems to be associated with significant synchronization, improved sleep quality, and what some of the research is suggesting that metabolic disruption in the form of um, weight gain, uh, sluggish metabolism, insulin resistance can be enhanced and improved by creating a longer window of fasting and a narrower window of consumption. And I'm not talking about reducing what you're consuming. It's just narrowing the window within which one consumes it. And from an ancestral lens, uh, Drew, uh, right, this is probably how most ancestral cultures lived. You know, they weren't eating right after they got up, grazing throughout the day and grazing right up until bedtime. Um, you know, they, they would hunt, gather. Uh, they might eat one large meal a day with, you know, some shorter periods of, of consumption. Um, and, and that window just tended to be much more tight. That seems to be another important environmental cue that uh, establishes circadian entrainment in a way that our day-to-day -day modern life disrupts because we're eating all the time. And again, if you're eating at 9 p.m. and you go to bed at 9.30 or 10 p.m., you're, even though in modern life there, there may not seem to be anything unusual about that, you have food available to you, you go down to your fridge, whatever you want may be there in your cupboards. From a, an evolutionary biologic perspective, that is not a normal pattern. Uh, uh, so your brain is thinking, hmm, uh, that those chicken wings, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that, uh, spaghetti, it, it must be earlier in the day because that's usually when I'm receiving those, those inputs. And so, uh, I'm not going to turn my melatonin on and turn my cortisol off if that is the input that I am receiving. And so those are several uh, nutrition, meal timing, light 
interventions that can dramatically enhance circadian entrainment. Really powerful stuff. And, and so, Mark, you practice, do you practice the time? Do you have a cutoff point in your own life when you just, you know, you don't eat past a certain time? Do you practice this? Yeah. And so for me that, you know, that is an, that is an area that, you know, took me a while to, to work on Drew. I, I do. Uh, so what I do is I, uh, I will tend to, uh, time restrict my eating most days, I'd say maybe five days a week. And that time restriction is about 10 hours. Uh, my, my largest meal of the day is dinner. I eat it earlier than I used to. Usually I'm eating dinner no later than six. Uh, and, uh, because I do consume more fat, um, I'll tend to be more satiated. I'm not craving a treat. Uh, and so and generally I'm in bed by nine 30. And, and so usually I have at least two hours of, of, of a window there. Um, most mornings I'm drinking black coffee, uh, maybe mid morning I'll have some heavy cream. So the clock starts for me then that at least that's how I think about it. Um, and that, you know, I'll have a very light lunch, um, supper being my biggest meal of the day. I use full spectrum lighting every morning, uh, not year round, um, you know, it, but, but certainly once you get into the Columbus day, you know, through spring, particularly where I live, uh, at, you know, at a, at a Northern latitude, I'll do full spectrum lighting for 20 to 30 minutes. I, um, have blue blocker filters in all my appliances. Um, I will wear blue blocker glasses. Uh, you know, if I'm going to watch a ball game, uh, cause I can't quite manipulate my, uh, um, television. And so I'll wear those blue blocker glasses, which are relaxing and soothing and really, you know, gives you that nice yellow sort of glow. Uh, and I have an infrared uh, lamp that I use later at night. And, I, and I'll use that for my back. And, you know, it's relaxing. It helps with a little bit of the chronic uh, back pain that I have. And it sort of prepares me as late day sunshine or a campfire would uh, for a night of restoration. And I find these very, very effective and, and inexpensive interventions. That's wonderful. Um, so Mark, I wanted to ask you, um, one more question on the, uh, the virus and then we can move on, move on. But, um, you know, you know, the way I look at it is this is not going to be the last virus that we experience. There could be a COVID 20 or 21 or whatever. Um, what do you think we can learn from this virus? What is it? What do you think maybe it has to teach us? Mm. Well, one thing that that uh, some of my work drew professionally is is in the in the realm of population health and population health essentially examines the health of a community in a very broad way, understanding that we have many inequities in outcomes of health. We know that people of lower socioeconomic status, we know people that have more disruptive households, maybe um, single parent, maybe drug use or substance use or trauma. We know that people who are food insecure, who maybe just don't know where their next meal is going to come from. 
we know that people who don't have transportation. So uh, the pandemic has, uh, from my perspective, uh, lifted the veil of the many inequities that exist in our culture. Um, those with less are hurt even more. Um, those with more are hurt less in general. Um, and so one way that my eyes have been opened through the pandemic is that it really has exacerbated many of the inequities that are uh, pervasive in the American healthcare system. Uh, that alone is a huge subject, uh, but it speaks to the fact that as communities of people, we need to be caring for each other. Um, and um, that, that, that requires a fundamentally different model than what most people are engaged with. So that for me has been a huge eye opener. Um, the other ways in which I think this has opened my eyes is the affirmation of one's resiliency state and the um, extent to which all that we've talked about here, Drew, returns the power to the individual to begin to examine how every choice and the environment that they are in, the extent to which they can influence it, has much greater impact than any vaccination will ever have. Um, and, and so the reminder that most of what impacts our longevity or quality of life is really lifestyle is affirmed by what we're seeing from all of the data uh, that has been published thus far with respect to COVID and COVID risk. Um, the, the other interesting um, aspect of this from a public health perspective, Drew, that we won't really have a, a full sense of perhaps for many years is this, is this phenomenon of epigenetics. And epigenetics, just very briefly, I know our time's a bit limited, but, but epigenetics refers to the extent to which environment, our choices, lifestyle, affects the way our DNA expresses itself. Um, so if you consider the pandemic as a several month long traumatic event, and you begin to examine how a child perhaps born uh, during this time, uh, or any woman who's been pregnant during this pandemic who either delivered during or whenever, um, there's a likelihood that epigenetically, these kids are gonna come into the world a bit more hypervigilant. Uh, we know that um, from epigenetic research in parts of the world that have been traumatized, hunger, um, uh, the, the Quebec ice storm uh, back in the, I believe that was, um, you know, 20 or so years ago, uh, women who were pregnant during that time and their offspring, when you follow them for many years, they, they had a very different biology, um, which, which would manifest as inflammation, you know, asthma, life-threatening allergies, maybe um, learning disabilities, obesity, and so I do think as we learn more about epigenetics and the extent to which our environment can establish a biology 
that even when that threat is gone, and we're going to get over this pandemic, we're going to move on from it, but, but there'll be more threats out there, that from a public health perspective, we need to be mindful that these are events that can alter the biology of individuals for a lifetime if one isn't mindful of the opportunity to establish conditions that can begin to reverse that. And we know that epigenetics can change quickly, either in a uh, disruptive way or in a more health-promoting longevity way. And so, I, you know, I think that's something that I think about a lot is what are the, you know, what are the longer term implications of, of particularly for our kids, you know, who um, are amazingly resilient, but, um, you know, many of them are in households that are struggling and fear becomes a, a pervasive dimension of their life. And, and as we talk about allostatic load and, and the fight flight response, uh, you know, I, I think we really need to be mindful of, of our kids, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, what they're eating. And again, these are ch- these are community challenges. No, no health system will ever have a good answer for that. Um, th- these become issues of social capital, community capital. Um, and and I, it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how we respond. Absolutely, Mark. All right, so I got two final questions for you, Mark. And just to just to throw this out at you, um, if there's someone listening right now who is feeling a bit powerless and hopeless right now, and and they were sitting on your couch with you, what would be one thing that you might recommend that they do today to maybe take their life in a new direction? Yeah. Well, I would certainly first look that person in the eye and tell them that I love them uh, and that their life means a lot to me um, and that we're all connected. Um, You know, this is a journey meant to be shared, yet many people feel very alone and isolated along that journey. Uh, And I would, um, based on where that person was at, would attempt to to really um, um, get a sense of what brings joy, what 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 is uh, what lights the, the flame of passion in their life? Um, I would ask that person, um, when you are feeling um, comfortable in your body, happy in your body, what is it that you're doing uh, at that time? and and how can how can how can you begin to cultivate? circumstances that can reignite that. Um, and, and, and that's part of, you know, how do you stay in the eye of the storm? So I would, I would try to get a sense of, of what brings meaning and purpose to their life. And, and how could, how could maybe I help them help themselves re- recreate that? Um, and, and I do think, um, um, you know, just the fundamental aspects of food and shelter and, and love and connection, uh, you know, it, Anything one can do to cultivate that in their lives um, would be, you know, the best step forward. Understanding um, it, and that won't diminish the challenges, but it can create a bit more ease as one navigates those challenges. And um, it can be hard for a person to appreciate how much power they have when you're feeling afraid and fearful and powerless. Um, the, the the challenge is reframing the interpretation and response to your circumstances. So often I'll tell people, um, 
Consider the challenge that you confront as a puzzle. And if you were to break those puzzle pieces down, um, focus on the ones over which you have more influence over as separate from the pieces that maybe you, you look at, you just cannot control them. Okay, don't focus on that. Because um, we all have puzzle pieces over which we can influence. Uh, and then, you know, find someone to, to cry with, you know, hug with, <laughs> yeah. uh, walk with. Um, and, and hopefully that can at least begin to ignite a sense of hope that can then lead to, I think, uh, momentum, uh, that can create, uh, you know, wiser choices. I love that, Mark. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Final question for me, Mark. Um, if you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say 45 years or so, what words of wisdom might your current self share with your younger self? Wow. Great questions, Drew. <laughs> um, I, you know, I would probably, uh, if I were looking at myself uh, 40 years ago, uh, I would probably start by saying, Mark, don't take yourself too seriously, brother. Um, uh, you know, don't forget how powerful you are. You know, uh, don't forget to to love the person you see in the mirror. You know, if you don't if you if you're not happy with the person you see, changing the mirror is not going to make you happier. Uh, right. And so um, uh, I, I think it would be words of, of, of encouragement around the power that already exists the possibility that already exists and, and to encourage um, a deeper connection with that. Great. So what's the best way, Mark, for people to find out about more about you and your work? I, I have a website that I share with my friend, John Bagnulo. It's called the Health Edge. It's the healthedgepodcast.com. If somebody just Googles Health Edge, they'll probably find it, Drew. And um, John and I put our recordings up there. We have a lot of content and, and information. Um, that would be the, the best way. I've got a YouTube channel, um, the Health Edge YouTube channel with, with some video content. And uh, right now, John and I are taking a little sabbatical as we, as we uh, deal with the hubbub of life, but, but we'll be coming back to it. And we've got about five years of content there and, and it's a lot of fun. And, um, we don't promote things. We don't sell things. We, uh, it's just uh, a passion for sharing and, uh, and thinking about health. So. Mark, it's great catching up with you, my friend. This you was fun. You as well, bro. I, 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 so yeah, so my, my flame is lit. Thank you for the dopamine. <laughs> and uh, thank you for your friendship. And, th and thank you for the light that you're shining in the world. It's beautiful. It gives me hope. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.